0: Welcome to Story Connects, where we talk about the art of story. Uh, Each week, we're going to watch a new movie and do a kind of deconstruction. I'm going to be having several guests on, some of uh, of whom are people that I admire, some are people that I work with. Uh, That sounded awful. Okay, we're rolling. Welcome to Story Kinetics, where we talk about the art of story. Uh, Each week, we're going to watch a new movie, and then we'll do a detailed deconstruction. We'll uh, try and first look at the actual structure of the movie, uh, like uh, the plot points and the major turning points. And then from there, we're going to use some theoretical structures to kind of diagnose what the character is, what the character arcs are, if there are any, and uh, talk about how that informs theme. Okay, so a little bit about me. I'm a filmmaker. Um, I've worked in the industry for over 15 years. I've worked for um, a lot of the major studios. I've been very lucky. I've gotten to work with a lot of really talented people. I've worked in film, animation, television, games, uh, publishing, um, advertising, and all those things have kind of informed uh, the way I approach story and the way I approach art. Uh, for me art and story uh, are very closely connected now I'm both a uh, screenwriter as well as a uh, novelist I'm currently working on a novel called intervention that I'm really excited about and I'm going to be telling you guys about it as we go along story by Today's story bites, we're going to be going over the 24 plot point paradigm. This is kind of a diagram that I've developed over the years that I refer to whenever I'm writing uh, or whenever I'm trying to find out if there's something that's working or something that's not working in a script that I'm either consulting on, collaborating with. Um, This is kind of my way to prioritize, like, uh, you you want to be able to hit beats visually, cinematically. You want to be able to tell the story in a way that, like, has the... um, really has the emotional emphasis where it needs. And a lot of that comes down to really understanding how to structure the story. Um, so uh, I've developed this this four-act structure um, that has eight different sequences. And this is this is kind of a generalization. Now, with novels and stuff, they tend to be a lot more free with the structure because they don't have the limitations of film and production. Um, the audiences are vary greatly, genre varies greatly. So in a novel, you can have... A novel at sixty thousand words or two hundred thousand words, and if you have a willing audience, then they're willing to to engage that novel for you know weeks on end. Uh, but with a movie, you tend to have people that want to sit through something maybe uh, two hours at a time, and that kind of be, tends to be the, the threshold. So the limitations are a little bit tighter, which is one of the things I like about screenwriting is because it has the limitations, you do learn to uh, to really prioritize. What absolutely needs to be what absolutely needs to be conveyed in the story, and what can be trimmed. So, screenwriting is a great way to learn how to kind of trim the fat from your story, and it's a great way to, to understand structure. Um, and that's one thing that I'm I, I like a lot about uh, screenwriting and writing for television is that it has informed the way I write novels as well. Um, I tend to be a meticulous outliner, I tend to outline pretty thoroughly. I'll have a really clear idea of where every scene is going, where the major plot points are going before I ever write a single page. Um, I don't. I, when I was younger, I used to stare at the blank page and just kind of do the Stephen King thing and just kind of launch myself at it and see what I came up with. And I went down a lot of blind alleys. Wrote a lot of useless pages. I probably wrote a good five novels that, thankfully, will never be read by anyone. So let's jump into this uh, this paradigm, this diagram. Now, um, I took this class with this uh, brilliant screenwriter. His name's Ron Mita. He's a brilliant guy. Really good with like really good in the room. Really good at pitching. Very good at concise uh, storytelling. And one of the things that he talked a lot about is this 24 plot point system. Um, And I know as soon as you hear system and formula, it just kind of like starts to irk that feeling of like uh, this, it feels like a piece of your artist dies inside you. But the truth of it is, is it's a practical way of kind of prioritizing your ideas. A lot of us have a million different ideas. It's like a mudslide of ideas. And the, the hardest thing about writing is figuring out how to kind of put them all together into one story in a way that's concise and that's paced well and that like it, it, that you engage it or keep the audience engaged. It's a lot of, a lot of screenplays and a lot of novels suffer from this very problem where they just have so many ideas and it's all just kind of it, it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. So a lot of this uh, 24 plot points is about kind of pacing it. So it always feels like there's a kind of momentum. There's a trajectory with every single scene, every single chapter, every single sequence. You feel like you're going somewhere. Um, so, uh, so it starts off with, uh, you, we have these 24 plot points. Now in this diagram, I've intentionally left off a lot of the plot points mostly because I want to look at the tent poles or the major landmarks that are turning. But what, what we see is that we have 24 plot points. If we, if we break it down into acts, we have about six plot points per act. And then, and then from there we have sequences. A sequence is just a series of scenes or a series of plot points. Um, and then each sequence has three plot points which culminates at that major landmark so what we're going to be doing is using this paradigm as kind of a a prototype that we'll be holding up to movies um and you can also apply this to novels i use this when i'm writing a novel as well Uh, the the idea is you hold it up as kind of something to compare to it's not an ideal it's not a measuring stick that you can measure how good something is. Your job is to find ways to to take this and reconstruct it so it makes sense for your story. Okay, so diving in just really quick. Uh, act one, sequence one. You start with a hook, which is where you grab uh, the where you grab the audience's attention. You introduce the character, and the character is navigating a world, and the way they navigate the world. Reveals a lot about their character and their value system. It also tells us what the what the rules of the world are. For example, if you have a kid who's uh, new in high school, they're learning what the what the cliques are, the like uh, who's in power, who's in control, what the hierarchy is, what the statuses are, the pecking order. Um, versus like if you have somebody who's you know trying to get into the mafia, and uh, some of the different like um, decisions and choices they'll have to make under different circumstances. And then, uh, right at the end of the first sequence, you have the impetus. Now, each one of these, we're going to go into, to specific breakdowns. Uh, each story bite will go into more detail in each aspect. Um, but generally we'll, we'll, we'll start to look at, uh, I want to just generally kind of cut through this really quick. So the impetus is where they, they receive the problem. They encounter the problem that they want to solve for the whole story. And this becomes kind of the spine to the entire story from beginning to end. Um, so you present the problem, they usually negotiate stakes in sequence two, and then from there the dramatic question is, they, this is when they uh, have decided that they're going to try and solve the problem. This could be an opportunity or a threat. And then you jump into act two. Act two is all about how, usually it's all about their strengths, it's how they kind of negotiate their different conflicts and try and get closer to, the, to solving that dramatic question. Uh, which was posed by the impetus. Uh, And then from there, you hit the midpoint. Midpoint is kind of a false climax. It's where they think they're getting close to solving the problem. And then the floor drops out from under them and they start tumbling down the hill. Uh, And then switch sends us to act three. Now, typically speaking, I got to acknowledge most people write in three acts if they use acts at all. Um, There's no right or wrong way. There's no, uh, I mean, there is Bible, but there, there is no rule of how many acts you need to have. If you're writing a TV episode, you tend to have four to five acts. If you're writing a feature film, you tend to have two to three to four acts. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on how you want to structure it. You know, Shakespeare would have five to seven acts um, in, in his plays. So it, it, it depends on what you want to get across and what the structure is and the, the format and the platform and everything. Um, sometimes you want to have nothing but a single plot point if you want to do a short film. Uh, But what I've done is taken the typical three-act structure. Now, most of the time they have three acts uh, and they have a midpoint halfway through the act, uh, act two. So they'll kind of do act two A and act two B. When the truth of it is, is they're functioning as discrete acts, as separate acts. So I went ahead and divided the acts into act one, two, three, and four. And then the climax resolves itself in act four. So once they hit the midpoint, that sends us into act three. And everything, where, where act two is all about being uh, aggressive and assertive and, and proactive, uh, act three becomes reactive where they were just responding to the conflicts in them. Uh, this is when a lot of their weaknesses are revealed. And it sends them spiraling down to the low point. Low point is where they are kind of forced this kind of identity crisis and they realize they are not equipped to address this problem, generally speaking. And this is where they're kind of forced to look at themselves and think like, you know, look at the man in the mirror. Um, and figure out like, what is it they need to change about themselves? This is often where people tend to, where writers tend to put the character arc or the full transition or the completion of the arc. And they realize they need to be, they need to change their internal value system. Once they do all of a sudden, a new path opens up and they're able to see a way to solve the problem that they couldn't see before. So this is, um. And then from there, they're able to address the problem, and and they can uh, confront their final conflict, and this resolves the the climax. This brings us to the climax. And the climax is the answer to the dramatic question. So that, that's a quick introductory kind of overview of the four-act structure. Um, you'll notice that a lot of these plot points are not labeled. Uh, part of that is because we're, we're going to be revealing them and diving into them, but I wanted you to get a sense of the overall plot points as they go as they go along. Also, it'll give you a good reason to come back and uh, check out more episodes later when we dive into uh, the, to all the other plot points. Applying this kind of 24-plot point approach and the sequence approach really helps you kind of um, understand how each conflict helps you to develop character as well as reveal character. And that's, that's the whole point of this entire structure is to create, um, external conflicts that reveal internal character. Okay, that wraps up Story Bite for this week. Uh, each week we're gonna go into more depth and we'll talk about different story elements and story principles. So let's dive into the asshole. Look at the asshole! We recently got this question in the story group, um, The Art of Story on Facebook. And uh, I thought this would be a good opportunity to kinda talk about how we choose what we write about. Uh, the question is, uh, um, I'm often told to write what I know, which bores me. What if I wanna write about people and places that I don't exist? Do I have to write what I know? Now, I had this one mentor, uh, a screenwriting mentor, uh, who once said, "You are not interesting, and no one cares about you, but your mom." The problem is, is that we, when we write our own story, we tend to protect the character. We tend to um, justify uh, choices that we make, and we tend to we tend to write stories in a way that makes uh, makes us feel completely like the victim, and everybody everybody else is. Um, you know, the, it, it's the world that's at fault, not ourselves. And the problem with that is that's the opposite of great writing. Really good writing is is delving into characters with very strong, driven, in, unconscious drives that motivate them to do dramatic things uh, that they that most of us would never never even risk or never even try to do. And the best way to explore those values and explore those unconscious drives is by torturing them and seeing how they screw up and seeing how they make all the mistakes in the world and uh, showing their hubris, showing their weakness, showing, showing things that would embarrass and uh, maybe even make us feel guilty. And when we're writing about ourselves, we tend to not want to show that side. It, It takes a very brave person to show that level of vulnerability. What happens when we're writing fiction is we're able to, we're able to remove ourselves from the equation and actually dive into a lot of the principles. We can, you know, a lot of fantasies about pretending to be other people that we would never get to experience in real life. And, um, And I think the greatest stories are about stories uh, are, are explorations of character and value systems that either we feel strongly about or that we condemn or that or in the greatest writing, I think, is an opportunity to really try and empathize with people that we that we don't understand or attempt to try and create a story where we can dive into other cultures, other people. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't write your experiences um this idea of write what you know the 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 core of it simply means i would say rather than write what you know write what fascinates you write what you care about deeply Um, and when we're fascinated we tend to learn as much as we can Uh, you know if you look at rr martin uh, he was fascinated by european history he was fascinated by the war of the roses and a lot of that is what informed his kind of you know we digest our fascinations we digest the research and it comes out as its own creature and with great artists that's how we find uh stories that resonate with other people so when when people say write what you know i would put a clause on that and say write what you know because it fascinates you Look at the asshole! all right that wraps up the asshole. okay now we're going to dive into vivisection Section. This is the part I love the most. It's where we talk about the movies that we just watched. Okay, so this week in Vivisection, we're going to be doing Hail Caesar. Uh, it's by written, directed, produced, edited by uh, Joel and Ethan Coen, also known as the Coen Brothers, uh, two of my favorite filmmakers. It was uh, released in 2016. Film stars Josh Brolin, George Clooney, uh, Eldon Einrich, uh, Ralph Fiennes, Jonah Hill, Scarlett Johansson, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, and Channing Tatum. The IMDb logline reads like this, a Hollywood fixer in 1951 works to keep the studio in line. The budget was 22 million, the domestic box office uh, was 30 million, and then international box office brought in another 30 million. So worldwide box office total was about 64 million. So it more than tripled its money. That's a pretty successful film, especially considering that it's a a very unusual film for, for a box office. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes uh, registered uh, 85% on the tomato meter, and 44, uh, 44% in the audience score. So we're seeing a big difference between the the critics and the and the general audiences. So to begin with, uh, let's take a look at that 24 plot point um, diagram, the four act structure, and see how uh, how *Hail Caesar* lines up to it. It's it's a different kind of movie. Um, because it doesn't quite fit the, the gener- the, this, this uh, general prototype, but the way that it breaks the structure is so interesting and so clever. Um, and the thing I love about the Coen brothers is they're working on a high literary level. They're, they're, they're not only structuring dramatically in really interesting ways, they're also uh, creating really complex layers of metaphor that kind of feed into an allegorical interpretation. Almost all of their movies have that kind of depth to them, which is probably why, you know, we're going to end up doing every single one of their movies. It's, I think they're absolute geniuses. Okay. So it's, it's an hour and 40 minute movie. And the first thing we want to do is uh, once we see this kind of timeline, we have all these different scenes. We want to start kind of, Deconstructing to be able to identify the most important moments or the moments that inform the rest of the story so we can prioritize it and structure it in such a way that it's about getting the audience to propel their attention forward. You do that usually with the question. So the first thing we want to do is look at the dramatic question. Okay, And the dramatic question and the climax are inextricably connected. The climax is the answer to the dramatic question. In the case of Hail Caesar, it's it's a very unconventional story. a lot of people watch it and they think it's just a bunch of random scenes about different aspects of a Hollywood studio production. When the truth of it is, it actually has a really, it has an unconventional story structure. It has kind of like a frame structure, a kind of uh, frame plot that resolves itself in a really unusual way. Um, so the dramatic question is uh, posed as, will a character achieve X? The first dramatic question that we're really faced with is, will Eddie... Well, Eddie Mannix, Josh Brolin's character, gets Blaird Whitlock back. Will he get him back to set, back into production? Um, and then the climax is the answer to that question. Now, I expect you to have already watched the movie, so it's going to be full of spoilers left and right. And uh, so I'm just going to jump right to the end. The climax is, yes, Eddie sets Bla- Blaird Whit- uh, <laughs> uh, Whitlock straight uh and it's it's that great scene in the office where george clooney and josh brolin face off and uh, when he gets bitch slapped by josh brolin now what's interesting about uh hail caesar is uh, the the whole story is about a fixer which means it's a guy who's constantly juggling all of these problems uh, in order to keep the studio in production, in order to keep uh, production moving along. That's his whole job. Eddie Mannix is basically a fixer who's running all these different productions. And so we have this kind of frame story, uh, which is about the Baird uh, Whitlock abduction, uh, which resolves itself actually pretty easily. It resolves itself and really, it's almost like they forgot that that was the plot. But the question that re- is really haunting Eddie Mannix has not so much to do with Baird Whitlock. It it becomes one of his priorities, one of the problems that he has to solve. But the big question that he has is he's got a job offer from Lockheed. And so he's trying to decide if he wants to continue being the head of the studio, if he wants to continue being this fixer. So the second dramatic question is, will Eddie take the Lockheed job? And this is something that is plaguing his brain. And every single episode, or every, sorry, every single scene is him trying to decide whether he's going to take the Lockheed job or not. And then, as we know, since we've seen the whole movie, uh, the answer, the climax, the second climax is no, Eddie does not take the job. Now, the interesting thing about that is that one dramatic question informed the other. Now, the two are inextricably. Saying that too much, the the two dramatic questions are connected because they reveal one dramatic question forces him to address his other dramatic question. So the resolution, the climax for uh, dramatic question one becomes the 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 motivating force for him to resolve his second climax, uh, which is him having to resolve him feeling good enough to turn down the Lockheed job. And that's at the core of this. So we have the dramatic questions. Uh, now, it's very unusual to have more than one dramatic question. This is about a, a, a character whose whole job is to solve problems. Um, so all of, it's not the only problem. He has several different problems he has to solve, but this Baird Whitlock abduction becomes his big problem because this is his big star. This is the high stakes production that he's making for Hail Caesar. Um, and if it goes off production, he's going to lose actors. He's going to lose the director uh, they're not going to be able to make the film and it's going to cost them a lot of money. So there's a lot at stake for him with Baird Whitlock disappearing. This becomes kind of his crucible of deciding whether he wants to continue doing this job as a studio head or, uh, go or move on to Lockheed. Okay. So once we have this spine of the dramatic question connecting the climax, then we have the overall structure of the story. Um, uh, so we have the problem. Uh, we have the way they solve the problem. The next thing we want to identify is the impetus, um, often referred to as the inciting incident or the catalyst or the point of attack, basically what call it, whatever you want. Um, but, but, uh, what it calls for is a moment where the problem or the opportunity is presented to the character. Usually what we're seeing in the first act is we're seeing kind of how this character, uh, is living their life, their their normal routine. In the case of Eddie Mannix, it's how he's solving one problem after another, after another. He's showing up at uh, some scandalous photography, uh, trying to hide one of the studio-owned actors um, and paying off the police and all those things. And then, you know, he's we're seeing that he's constantly, like, fixing and hiding things and manipulating the public story while keeping a production on on. Uh, Unscheduled, uh, and then the impetus comes along uh, and throws that world out of balance, and that—that's really what that impetus is for. It throws the world out of balance and presents the problem that you're facing. So, in the case of *Hail Caesar*, the impetus is, of course, the moment where Baird Whitlock is kidnapped, the moment where those uh, Roman extras uh, drug him and then drag him off to the island—or sorry, to the beach. You know, again, this—the this structure is about identifying the plot. A lot of people tend to get caught up in dramatic questions. They'll tend to try and identify the theme. They'll say big questions like, you know, can a man live a fulfilled life balancing uh, a complex job and uh, having a a wife who wants him to quit smoking or they'll get kind of in the mud of the theme. So when we're structuring the story, we want to look primarily at plot and plot is about the external conflict and the choices they're making. What they want, and identifying what they want, and the strategies and tactics they're using to be able to go after that. The, these plot points have a kind of emotional charge or emotional value. It's it's usually like it's ups and downs. Like we, uh, every conflict they're facing, if they succeed, they usually feel good about it. If they receive bad information, then they usually feel worse about it. So it's all about finding finding this roller coaster, this emotional roller coaster that the characters are going through. Um, which means that the next thing we want to look for is the midpoint. Now, the midpoint is kind of a, it's usually, it's about disillusionment. The character thinks they're about to solve their problem. They think everything's going to be resolved. So they think they're about to get what they want. And then the bottom drops out from under them. Now, the act two is all about them feeling, once again, like they're making progress. So when the midpoint hits, um, the rug's pulled out from under them. And all of a sudden, they realize that the problem is much more complex than they thought it was going to be. So after that, act three is all about them trying to figure out, trying to scramble and figure out how they're going to solve this problem, or if it's even worth it to pursue it, or if, it, if it's the right thing to do in the first place. And that usually sends them kind of rolling down the hill all the way to the low point. The low point is where they've lost hope. They every every Everything they had inside them that they thought they'd be able to draw on any all their strengths, all their uh, uh, expertise, their wisdom has completely failed them so they drop that low point and um and everything feels like it's failed so in the case of hail caesar oh sorry uh first we gotta hit the midpoint right so the midpoint uh is that moment where they're uh where baird whitlock is with the communists and he says basically like whoa you know what's to stop me from naming names like if i'm not a part of the ransom what am i going to get out of this basically he's asking kibono who benefits and so at this point the abduction actually kind of seems like a friendly afternoon he's like having you know uh finger sandwiches and tea with, the, with these communists uh so it seems like just kind of a, a chill afternoon but it's the moment where he says so what's going to stop me from naming names and he says oh i don't think you will because we will be forced to mention what really happened on as wings as eagles which uh so that's that's when the the story turns it's it's not just a friendly afternoon with some pleasant scholarly screenwriters it turns into um it turns into an extortion and that's that's what makes it such a Uh, Such a strange midpoint because uh, George Clooney all of a sudden realizes this is a much more complex problem. He thinks he could be pretty much say like, oh, great. I, I had a little bit too much to drink. I woke up, had a nice conversation with some intellectuals, and now I get to go home. But no, he can't. And that's why that's the midpoint, because after that, everything's to be, everything reveals itself to be much more complex and people reveal themselves to have much, uh, much more nefarious motives than we in, in initially anticipated. So from there, we're going to go identify the low point. Um, <clears throat> and this, this is that moment. It, it's kind of a montage sequence where Eddie is he's at the height of stress. He doesn't know where Baird Whitlock is. He's paid the ransom. We know that Hobie is following uh, Bert Gurney. Um, he's following the, the briefcase um, to, the, uh, to the communists. But Eddie doesn't know that. And all of this is kind of factoring into his ambivalence. He's feeling really conflicted about this Lockheed job because it's like, you know, he could be done with these headaches forever and just take an easier job and stay home. Uh, be home by five, you know. Hang out with his kids, get more time with his kids and his wife. So he's feeling very conflicted. So, so the low point for him is that moment at uh, Golgotha, the the where the the crosses are, and it's that that classic kind of Christian silhouette where uh, he goes up and faces the the cross, and then of course the metaphor is him feeling like he's completely uh, like he's he's the one being crucified under this 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 kind of crucible. Um, so that's his low point. <clears throat> and f- and then the final major landmark that we want to de- identify on a on a four act structure um, is the hook. And the hook is uh, in this case uh, the hook. The whole idea of the hook is to kind of uh, grab your audience's attention, bring them into a world, and promise that this is going to go somewhere interesting. And usually, you want to kind of establish motifs and the themes. I think of it a lot as an overture um, for a symphony where you, you establish certain kind of musical harmonies. It sets the tone. You get kind of a sense of where it's going to go. Um, and, and you can introduce the character as well. In this case, the the hook for Hail Caesar is uh, Eddie's confession uh, when he's in the confessional. We get to learn a lot about his character. He seems like someone who's uh, hyper-religious overly concerned uh he's really concerned about lying to his wife about smoking um, and then the interesting thing is right after that he goes to a photo shoot and literally slaps a woman across the face which is interesting because at first we're kind of like oh he's, he's kind of a gentle soul he's concerned about you know upsetting his wife and doing the right thing And then he goes and hits a woman and you're immediately you're forced to confront like, okay, he he has some really unconventional or unusual uh, value system, Um, which is something, you know, for that time, um, it it wouldn't have been seen as as controversial as it is now. And this is, you know, the whole point of this is to kind of um, kind of use a long lens through history and look at the value systems back then and see how they inform us today uh and th- th- that's what's interesting about the Cohen brothers is they they really are able to look at that in a, in a way that that is kind of more of a moral mosaic than it is idealization they're not they're not saying that it was good that eddie did that they're saying they're showing the character contradictions and contradictions i think is really the key when it comes to hail caesar we want to look at the character contradictions look at the at the, the values that they have and uh, present them actually in a dialectic. And this is a great movie to talk about for dialectics. Okay, now that we have the basic bones for uh, Hail Caesar, uh, this, this kind of gives us an overview. This is kind of the 10,000 foot view of the major plot points. Uh, we know how to structure it. We know where the acts are. Uh, we, we start off the hook with the confessional. We see some of Eddie's value system as normal world. The impetus comes along when they kidnap Baird Whitlock. Um, and that sends him kind of negotiating stakes until the dramatic happen, a dramatic question happens, um, where he is presented with the, with the first opportunity to try and solve this problem. His first, his first solution is uh, just stall and we're not going to worry. We're, we're going to figure out, uh, he'll, this is probably just a bender and he'll be back in an hour. <clears throat> um, but once, uh. Once he begins to address that dramatic question, then we start to uh, get into Act Two. Now, this is this is a little bit unusual because of the unconventional frame story of the the abduction, along with the um, the Lockheed uh, job offer. Those two uh, those two dramatic questions inform each other uh, and create higher stakes for Eddie, which means that the dramatic question or the the Act Two. Ends up coming in right around 35 minutes. Um, it's a little bit of a longer first act, but it's not it's not terribly unconventional. A lot of a lot of uh, you know tentpole commercial movies, they tend to try and push that first act to get it done as quick as possible. You want to get to know the character, present the impetus, uh, and then present the dramatic question. Get into act two as quick as possible because you want to have the you know the the fun and games of all the the other acts that are following up. Um, so 35 minutes in, we get this act two uh, midpoint happens right around an hour. Um, and that's that's pretty much a conventional midpoint uh, timing wise and pacing wise. And then the midpoint comes in right around, uh, right around 123 minutes or so with a climax. The first climax happening when um, when Eddie has the confrontation with George Clooney. <clears throat> so once we have these major bones then we kind of fill in all the other plot points uh with that and kind of we can see that this is this is kind of a a small roller coaster it you know Eddie is really frustrated but we don't have a lot of really heavy ups and downs. he's kind of living in a state of like high intensity the entire time. So once we have this kind of overall map we can see how all the scenes kind of pace together and structure together From there we can start to kind of dive into the character and see how this begins to inform theme. Now, when, when we're looking at character and deconstructing character, I have kind of this uh, this model. I'm gonna be referring to it in every episode. And it's basically, I start with a conscious desire. Uh, I move into the unconscious drive, which is the, the uh, internal mechanisms that are driving the character to want the conscious desire, or the conscious objective. Uh, and then nestled within that unconscious drive is a kind of lesson or a weakness or a false belief the character has that they're going to have to learn. Um, and usually, you know, if if you have a story about a character arc, this is the lesson. This is the piece they're going to the, the piece of themselves that they're going to change. Now one thing to remember is this isn't just a lesson they're going to like, you know, all of a sudden they're going to learn how to ride a horse. It's not. It's not that kind of lesson. It's a moral lesson. It's it's essential value system that's going to be shifting, and um, and that's what a lot of people miss when they talk about character because they think it's just about a character who's uh, who's just changing their attitude about something. But the truth of it is, is it, it's essentially a, a, an innate value system that they often don't even know that they have, and the external conflict is going to force them to change their value system if they want to The whole idea is that a dramatic question gets them to ask, pushes them out of their comfort zone and gets them to ask, am I willing to change in order to achieve this objective? And that's what every single great story is about. It's about the question of, uh, of the negotiation we have internally as we pursue what we want in the world. And so, uh, so from there we can identify the moral imperative. Now the moral imperative is simply, you know, an imperative is that which must be done in order to achieve something. There's it's a conditional relationship. If you want X, you have to do Y and, uh, and the point of the moral imperative is to essentially force that Achilles heel out into the open and force them to reckon with it. So, um, so that moral imperative is the source of every single external conflict that they're facing. It's a little abstract, so we're going to get into that a little bit, and uh, hopefully with enough episodes and stuff, you'll you'll start to get familiar with uh, with how this functions. But it's at the core of every story. We can identify it in every story for every single dramatic structure with its character motive. And again, this informs the narratives, this informs the metaphors and informs allegory. But as we're going to see in this, it's not necessarily the full depth that we can uh, excavate from the allegory. And then, of course, from the moral imperative, uh, we get the theme. Now, the theme and the moral imperative feel very similar, because the moral imperative is a moral rule or, of how the world functions. And a theme is a proposition about a moral rule, um, about uh, uh, the way the world operates, or a specific moral sphere, how that operates. But the big difference between a theme and a moral imperative is the theme is the lesson we learn from the moral imperative. The moral imperative is a source of conflict, and the theme is the proposition that we can make after we have experienced the moral imperative. Sometimes it's failure, and that changes it. It's a little abstract. We'll get into it. <clears throat> so in the case of Eddie we know that the, we have a conscious desire um, now the conscious desire is always directly informed by the dramatic question. It's what it's the problem the character know, knows they want to solve. Uh, so in the case of Animatics, we have two dramatic questions. So we, we essentially have two conscious desires. Um, and the first one, the most external frame story, is he wants to get Baird Whitlock back to set, back into production. He wants to get the production done. He wants to get Hail Caesar complete. Um, and then his second conscious desire is to decide whether to take a new job, to take a Lockheed job. And he, the, the trick is, is that he wants to feel good about the decision. He's, he's really struggling with that. Um, so from there, these two conflicts are informed by the unconscious drive. The unconscious drive are just his, value, his internal value system. So in the case in the case of Eddie for his unconscious drive, this is where we start to have to kind of do some detective work. Uh, we wanna we wanna figure out what is motivating him, what's important to him, what is sacred to him, what's offensive or profane to him. And and at the core of this is we're seeing somebody who's being very ambivalent about the next step he's making in life. He's genuinely deeply conflicted about whether he should go to Lockheed. Or whether he should keep his job uh, as the head of the studio. Lockheed would be a much easier job. Uh, it would be a lot less taxing. It would be less of a circus. But at the at the core of it is he's trying to feel like you know like everything is good about Lockheed. What what's the downside? And yet he doesn't want to just you know give it up. He there's something in him that is trying to morally justify. Uh, staying at capital pictures so his unconscious drive is he wants to justify staying there so he can feel good about making the decision to pass up lockheed's offer lockheed is uh, it's better money it's less work it's less hours and yet for some reason he can't feel good about making that move Uh, so at the core of that is this achilles heel he struggles to feel like running the studio is a worthy endeavor you know this is a deeply religious man so family is very important to him his marriage his his wife's opinion is very important to him and he's trying to make make the decision to move to lockheed based on his core central sacred values and he's feeling very conflicted because he basically has an out he has a way to walk away from all of this kind of gumshoe uh, neo-noir well i guess film noir drama um of you know having to cover up all these stories and having to cover up all this drama and And curate all these people's private lives, and he can just walk away from it. But the truth of it is, is deep down, it's what he wants to do, and he can't find a way to kind of rationalize doing that, because it it does mean, you know, um, it'll take a toll on his marriage. It it could take a toll on the relationship. It could take a toll on his family, and it could take a toll on him personally. It's a harder job. But it's also where he finds meaning so much of the story is driven by this kind of ambivalence that he has where he hasn't quite justified in his own head the right reason to stay at a job that's much more difficult one of the things i love about this is they find a way to kind of metaphorize or embody um, eddie's internal structure through external metaphors and the way they do that, and this is directly tied into his unconscious drive and his Achilles heel, is we have the characters of um, of Baird Whitlock and Hobie Doyle. Now, the way they structured it is I believe Baird Whitlock and Hobie Doyle represent two aspects of Eddie externalized. Um, I think uh, Baird Whitlock represents kind of his... Um, his corruptible self. He he is the the current state of the Hollywood system of the of the studio system, where basically he's an actor who's doing what he's told, and then along comes this other opportunity that seems really enticing, um, and it, so it kind of represents Eddie's corruptibility. Um, much like Eddie is considering this offer from Lockheed, we have uh, Baird Whitlock is suddenly kidnapped and uh, presented a new way of looking at the world uh, by the communists. So <laughs> there's this interesting parallel between Lockheed and the communists um, and this, this, this new communist theory. Uh, so I think uh, Baird Whitlock's kind of represents the, the, mm-hmm. the age, the kind of cynical, uh, what do I get out of this kind of attitude? Uh, Toward the studio and then Hobie Doyle represents Eddie Mannix at a much younger naive side uh, Or younger naive time It's his idealism. It's his romanticism It's the it's the guy that's i'm going to do whatever I need to do because I just love being a part of the family And this is the right thing to do. It's a very kind of simple childish uh, It's a simple kind of morality which says, you know, there's my family. I'm going to be loyal to them It's very simple and clear-cut Baird Whitlock kind of looks at as, well, what am I going to get out of this? So the whole story uh, is, uh, you know, the whole Baird Whitlock story, his abduction, and then Hobie Doyle going to seek it out is a perfect metaphor for the unconscious of Eddie Mannix, his unconscious drive, his idealism, trying to trace back to where his own, um, ego had, uh, had kind of gone wrong, had gotten kidnapped or commandeered, and that's what's causing this ambivalence. That's why Eddie Mannix is feeling so ambivalent because his loyalties are being questioned. They're being they're being challenged. Um, his whole career, he's worked at the studio. He's very loyal to Skank. He stands up at the desk when he calls. He has a deep respect for him. Um, and Eddie Mannix is doubting his own loyalties. He's doubting his own faith, which is why that that speech at the, the feet of the penitent thief is so great because it's it's articulating both the idealism as well as the studio cynicism that that motivates the production of the of the film Uh, so from there uh we want to we want to identify the moral imperative that is uh that eddie is facing and this moral imperative is simply doing what's right is rarely easy he keeps trying to think like you know I, I I want to stay at the studio, but I can't justify it. I need to like Lockheed is a perfect opportunity to live a simpler life, to not deal with any of this drama. There's no reason not to. So he feels like he has to come up with a good reason to justify it. And the truth of it is, so, so this moral imperative is literally doing what right, doing what's right is rarely easy. Every single conflict that he's facing is increasingly complex. It's increasing complexity. And every single time he he addresses it, he feels closer to kind of building that resolve, uh, which ultimately uh, gives us that final theme that old, that moral proposition that he learns from it, which is faith keeps us from suffering under ambivalence. The Reason why Eddie is suffering so much is because he is ambivalent. He's he's unsure about the the next major step in his life, which is causing him to. Um, not make bol- the bold uh, decisions that he needs to. Yeah. So so at the core of the Animatic story, and we see, we see the full evolution of his character. His character arcs the moment he sits in front of uh, Baird Whitlock, which is a reflection of his own kind of ego, his own uh, solips or yeah, I guess you could say solipsism, his own childish ego, basically. Um, and he, he hears all of this rambling about uh, this new communist theory that he doesn't understand. And uh, Eddie stands up and he says, no, the studio treats you well. Skank, don't, I don't ever want to hear you talking bad about Skank. And he realizes that um, Baird Whitlock is being disloyal and unfaithful to Skank. And that's what triggers him to realize, wait a minute, I'm being disloyal and unfaithful. When he strikes Baird Whitlock, it's him striking himself. It's him realizing, I need to wake up. What am I doing? I love doing this. This is what I'm good at. I was born for this. Uh, That's when he gets the resolve. That's when he gets that, that, that moral kind of assurance. He is now justified in his own head. I don't need Lockheed. I'm good at this. I'm going to stick with it. Okay, so that gives us a map of the of the arc. Uh, we get the idea of like the the conscious desire, the unconscious drive, the Achilles heel, and how every single conflict is slowly changing in the, in the character. Now, the interesting thing about this story is, on the surface, it looks like a story about basically a, a bully uh, who is trying to keep everybody. Uh, in line. Now this, this depicts a really difficult time in the old studio system where the studio was monopolizing theaters. They were brutalizing anybody. They were ruining careers. They acted like they owned everything. They, um, they were, you know, hoarding all the profits from all the different production, uh, barely paying their writers. Uh, women were seldom credited when they were working in production, all these different things that were like, uh, th- this is an unhealthy structure, uh, and it's unsustainable. And this is, this represents the the period of time right before the major transition, where the studios were kind of broken up, and they weren't able to, you know, like own uh, the actors exclusively and stuff like that. So, so why why tell this story? Why, why is this? I I don't feel like this is the Coen Brothers saying you know romanticizing this period of time. And saying, this is how things should be. I think it's actually a much more complex story. This is, this is taking a look at the machine of storytelling uh, and commercialization and advertising and ask very big questions about our culture and how the culture works. So I want to take a look at what, what is this story really about? The Takeaway. This is one of my favorite moments in the movie, where he says, uh, "I'm not really a student of history," and he's literally dressed as a Roman legion <laughs> among a bunch of scholars. Now, to really dive into this story, um, there's that the classical way of looking at uh, the levels of a story. There's the you know there's there's the dramatic narrative, which is what we just discussed. The plot points, uh, the character arcs, all those things are 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 pretty much the. The surface level of the story. Now, even though we get some insight, uh, some insight into the psychology of the characters, that's still pretty much just the narrative of the story. Now, the next level down is uh, theme or allegory. Now, one way to look at it is there's the proto-theme, which is you know the the, the lesson that Anymanix learns. Uh, which is on the surface, it looks like it's endorsing Eddie Mannix is like, that's an arc that we should all, you know, we should all emulate Eddie Mannix because he learned to, to make the right choice and be loyal to his employer, loyal to the studio system. Um, even though the studio system was uh, kind of a corrupt thing at that time. Um, so that's, that's the proto theme or the character arc. Uh, the next way to look at it is the meta theme or the allegory. And an allegory is just a metaphor extended into a conflict so that uh, so that we, it reveals a certain kind of larger pattern. It's usually when like a character represents a worldview or a philosophy or even historical figures. It's it's basically, um, a metaphor means other forms or, or second form. Um, so when you when you engage something, uh, when you're looking at a story and you see certain parallel patterns, um, then you can start to ask, what is the allegorical value to that metaphor? Now, in the case of uh, Hail Caesar, we have certain obvious um, earmarks that are telling us what the metaphors are. First of all, we have Capital Studios, Capital Picture Studios, and uh, the primary antagonist to Capital Studios are the communists. Now, um, so we can right off the bat, we can see that this is, uh, this is a story about capitalism in conflict with communism. It's not simple propaganda where they're just saying capitalism, good communism, bad. In fact, I don't think you can actually extrapolate that from, from this story. Um, I think what they're actually doing is using caricature to illustrate the extremes of the allegory. Um, this is a caricature of capitalism. It's a caricature of communism, uh, and they're brought into conflict with each other. And now, a caricature is just where you're taking something that resembles, it looks familiar, and exaggerates it to a degree that that is a commentary on what we what we recognize as familiar. Um, which the tricky thing about caricature is it often collapses into straw man, and a straw man is simply just where you're representing an opponent's point of view. Um, You're misrepresenting an opponent's point of view, and you're doing it intentionally just to make their argument look weak. In this case, it's not so much about trying to represent capitalism accurately or communism accurately. I think it's actually much more interesting to look at the conflict, the philosophical conflict that was happening at the time and look at how it's a mirror for our own time and look at the mechanisms that are active in that relationship. Um, so let's look at how they do that. Now, the first thing I think that, that's really interesting is they draw this really interesting parallel between communism and religion. Uh, in, in the first act, we have this great scene where we have, I think it was two priests, a minister and a rabbi. And they're all gathered around and they're having this argument um, about the nature of God and you know, how God is represented uh, in the film. And the interesting thing is, you know, cut to just a, a few minutes later and you see an identical composition of uh, Baird Whitlock in the room watching these communists argue over the nature of man versus the nature of God, the function of man and the function. So you, you, you start to see these, these parallels, how um, there's a kind of religious hierarchy emerging from the communists. In one scene, we talk about how God is split. And there's this argument about the, just the essential nature of, of God compared to the communist argument, how man is split and uh, and the role of man and the function and the body politic and all that stuff. Um, and then one of the biggest central values is, you know, uh, yes, we're for the little guy. This is all about economics. History is economics and they're interchangeable. And ultimately, we're for the little guy and we're we're for about we're for uh, equalizing everything so that there is no no more of a predatory hierarchical uh, power dynamic or a pecking order. Um, or the, but at the same time, they're, they're just saying, you know, we're for the little guy. Yeah, well, sure. It's about the little guy. We also want to make some money on the side, which is part of the uh, the great contradiction of, of their own worldview. And then you see that paralleled perfectly with all the scenes where they're representing uh uh engaging the you know the rabbi of nazareth or her uh jesus um and you're seeing you know the moment where he's giving the the great speech the big climactic speech at the feet of the penitent thief and he literally says i saw only a man weak or i saw only men weak men and he gave succor." And the, and the idea is they're drawing this really clever parallel between 50s communist theory with uh, ancient Christianity and how both of them were kind of rivals of empire. And then to take that, that metaphor even further, we have the scene uh, where uh, Eddie Mannix is talking to the priest or the uh, to the rabbi, the two priests and the minister. And uh, he even says that the main character is just an ordinary man, even though he was a Roman tribune who is a kind of general in the army. But I think that's Eddie Mannix identifying himself as an ordinary man. Because in a way, Baird Whitlock's character or the um, Antolycus is a kind of um, fixer uh, in his own army. And that's, that's, I think, how Eddie sees himself in this story. Uh, and then again, once again, we see uh, man is unitary. And then also God is uh, unity and division. So we're we're seeing these parallels, and what 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 I think the the Coen brothers are going for is that um, communist theory or political theory, and uh, I think this you know they're using communism, but I think what they're playing with is that all political, all power dynamics, all these ideologies kind of express themselves and become sacred values, and then become kind of dogmatic and solidified into kind of religious hierarchies or religious. Religious structures. So and, and then the, that parallel, I think they take it even just a, a, another step even further and they say communism I think that the film is largely saying communism is the more recent embodiment of an ancient grievance that gives rise to religion So they're drawing a strong parallel. I mean, they're saying that, you know, Marx and Engels aren't just saying that uh, they, they they're not presenting a new idea to a recent solution they're saying that this has been a conflict going on for centuries since you know we were in ancient empires, and we are still you know the common man trying to rise up and assert their own will, their own their own being, in the presence of controlling dominant empires. So so on one side we have the communists, and then on the other side we have the capitalists, and. Uh, we can see that uh, that they're that they're drawing a really clear parallel between capitalism and empire building, which is the other side of the dialectic. We're, we're going to talk about dialectic specifically. But um, so so we have lots of imagery that emphasizes that this isn't just uh, capitalism or like, you know, the exercise of a free market. This is people building empires and holding on to their empires. Yeah, and and part of the so the the whole basis of communism was started out as completely just a criticism of capitalism. And uh you have this great uh scholar, intellectual specifically identifies that the studio is an instrument for capitalism. Uh so you know, it's this isn't even deep dug metaphors. They're explicitly saying these are these are the metaphors we're going for. And then the narrator refers to it as uh, the tireless machinery that clanks on these, basically these stories, these movies, these productions are like um, like a, a automobile factory where they're just you know taking wheels, taking engines, and assembling it, and it's just following this kind of assembly line production line. Um, so you have all these images that are trying to reinforce that that uh, filmmaking or these these production studios. Uh, and these large corporations are f- ways of building empires, and it's like this scene of you know the Baird Whitlock. It's great irony, but it also reinforces that image, that allegorical image of the Roman tribune entering the gates of the studio, as if it's this you know returning home to his uh, to his conquered Rome or to his victorious Rome. We have this moment where the you know the the elderly scholar in. Uh, in the Beach House, in Bert Gurney's Beach House, uh, is talking about uh, the way capitalism expresses its contradictions. Um, And these contradictions need to be worked through. Uh, He's he's talking about the dialectic, which we're going to talk about. But what he's specifically saying is the contradictions of the studio system here, in this case. Um, And what he's pointing out ultimately is this, this big contradiction that is being expressed left and right, in every single scene, which is that capitalism is not an open market, but an engine that collapses into hierarchical stratification. So even though capitalism pretends to be you know, a, a mode for, for free exchange and free discourse, what it actually turns out to be is just as much of a hierarchical oppressive tyranny um, and that's the contradiction that he's forcing, without ever acknowledging their own kind of contradiction. As much as they try and focus on equality and um, fairness, they're they're resorting to all these tactics that are ultimately uh, predatory. Ultimately, about them trying to get their profit or their amount of money that they feel they are, they're they owed. And what's interesting is is this is a story um, about the 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 propaganda machine uh how they're using storytelling specifically to tell the stories that the audience uh, w- that won't offend the audience that will tell everybody what they want to hear but will reinforce their value systems that drive them towards uh, more consumption uh, that drive them toward the the capitalistic ethic so hail caesar uh, on the surface looks like it's a story about you know a, a A studio head deciding like, this is what I want to do. I'm really good at this crazy circus and I love being involved in, in filmmaking, but I think it's, I think it's actually saying something, um, a lot more sophisticated about the nature of propaganda. And this is what I think it's really talking about. I think the meta theme of hail Caesar is the propaganda machine of empire will cynically tell whatever story a culture considers sacred to achieve its own objectives. So at the beginning, you know, we, ha- we have this studio who's trying to tell the story of uh, this a tale of Christ, but from the perspective of a common man, a, a Roman tribune. And it's something that, you know, in the 50s would have been considered, a, you know, just a, a conventional, heartwarming, epic story that most Christian Americans would be um, just soaking it up because it's everything that they consider to be good and right with uh, with their worldview, and then they go and draw the parallels between Christianity and communism. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, that's that's the point of that scene with the 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 speech at the feet of the uh, the penitent thief, is that they're showing that these actors will say anything. That they're told to do. The the screenwriters, the production company, the studio will say whatever they need to say in order to uh, sell tickets. It doesn't matter whether you know it's Christianity, communism, or anything. It's it's whatever the sacred values that will sell tickets. That is the machine. That is the function of the propaganda machine. It's not something. It's not so much about mind control or other conspiracy theories. It's more about um, engaging the audience where they're at giving them what they want uh, as long as they're willing to buy popcorn and buy the tickets then we come back to this one concept of accelerating the dialectic this is a social political theory a sociopolitical theory uh, called uh, accelerationism and, and basically there's a right wing and a left-wing version but basically accelerationism says that um, every power dynamic every social system ha- is full of contradictions and it's constantly in kind of a, a, a dialectic with itself that is slowly exposing the contradictions and then will eventually collapse because it will reveal itself to be insufficient or incompetent as a social structure. Um, So real quick, a dialectic is basically, you know, classical dialectics means you have two sides of an opposing argument. You have the thesis or the claim or proposition, and then you have the antithesis, the disagreement or the counterpoint. And then they conflict with each other, which is the dialectic. Um, you have, um, you know, a poison points of view. And then they, you either have a didactic kind of resolution where, you know, one conquers and uh, you have the, the thesis is proven, um, or you have a kind of synthesis where the value of each argument is, uh, is exposed and revealed and they kind of develop a kind of synthetic relationship with each other. Um, and come up with a new uh, way of looking at it now classically. This was this was seen as like the kind of the Socratic method or the, the best method to arrive at some truth I And mean, the truth of it is it's just a great way to kind of argue um, Argue opposing opposing points of view. So the idea of accelerating accelerating a dialectic is a way for um, the, the theory is basically that every system has its contradictions And the more you expose, uh, the more you facilitate that system to gain power, um, it will force them to, uh, reckon with their contradictions and their contradictions will cause them to collapse on their face, (laughs) which is, uh, it's a very cynical kind of thing. It's basically saying like, you know, I, I want to help you run faster so that you'll trip harder and fall harder. It's a very kind of, uh. Uh, it it just, it, it, it just reeks of cynicism, which is one thing we need to remember is this film was set in 1951, you know, shortly after bikini atoll where the hydrogen bomb was, uh, first tested. Um, and this is right at the beginning and the first early emergence of McCarthyism and McCarthyism was a right-wing tyrannical movement where it was just destroying people's lives. Basically it was an attempt by uh, the government uh, by certain parties in the government to punish people for having political theory to for believing political thoughts um and the idea was that you you know they they scared people so much you know we're, we're fresh out of world war ii um north korea was ramping up it was a really tumultuous time the cold war was slowly beginning to emerge and because of that, um, McCarthyism is starting to just be, barely peek over the edge and as the shadow is beginning to loom and lots of people were losing their careers. Um, if they didn't name names, if they weren't willing to throw other people under the bus. Um, and you can't watch this without also kind of referencing like Trumbo, which came out just the year before this movie uh, it's a story about a communist screenwriter who was blacklisted uh, for having different political beliefs. Um, and then also look at uh, Mank is another recent one, the David Fincher movie, also about uh, the role of uh, communist and socialist theory in filmmaking. And what what's interesting is, you know, the question becomes, like, why why tell this story in 2016? Uh, like, and why tell this the way the Cohen brothers did? I don't think in any way that this was romanticizing the studio production. Nobody wants to go back to that kind of tyrannical studio system where literally like studios owned writers, owned actors, owned directors. Um, it's not a healthy system and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's still a, it's still a complex, there's lots of toxic behavior and, you know, hopefully slowly we're working on getting better and people are learning to communicate better. Um, but nobody wants to go back to that old system. The, the question becomes why tell this story now? And what's interesting is, is, there's this little scene where uh, Deanna Moran, played by Scarlett Johansson, uh, is they're going to be covering up her pregnancy because back then, in, in you know 1951, a uh, famous virtuous actress having a child out of wedlock would have been way too controversial and would have caused people to boycott their movie and cancel them and get them fired and you know destroy their career. Just because they're making personal decisions that other people don't that weren't popular or weren't seen as ethical or moral uh, so they have the scene where she's signing the documents where she's agreeing to hand over her child to this uh person jonah like played by jonah hill um, to cover up her pregnancy out of wedlock and There's this little moment where he says all these documents will be sealed until the year 2015 when this movie was in production. And I think that's the Coen brothers way of saying this, this movie isn't about just nostalgia. This isn't about remembering the way things work. I think this is the Coen brothers kind of saying, uh, holding up a mirror and saying like, we need to look at, at how this functions, how, how. These forces of empire, these forces of capitalism, these forces of communism, socialism—how they work by removing them from our current modern context—and ask how do we navigate these still these systems? Like, do we still have these systems present? And what's interesting is we're seeing a very similar kind of dynamic going on right now. Um, You know, the big question is—you know—so we don't we have a different studio system now? If we look at the modern equivalent to a studio system, it's not so much a Hollywood studio system. It's more the tech giants. It's more the social media. It's the interactions of how people communicate, and we're still seeing a similar pattern. I think what the Cole brothers are saying by you know referencing the you know the this the, this Christian movie, this uh, you know Roman going through the time of Christ, they're saying that this is a pattern that keeps repeating itself. And that these large uh, market forces, these large uh, forces of empire are willing uh, or basically thrive off of using whatever value system is exists at the time as a kind of weapon uh, or as a kind of uh, mode to control the market forces to control. Um, to turn what would be an open market or to turn what would be um, attempts at equality as ultimately ways of being divisive and um, being uh, using a kind of division, using a kind of uh, strategy of, of polarization uh, to to gain market share, to uh, you know you're you're going to click on movies that you feel provocative that feel like resonate with your storytelling but ultimately they don't care what you believe they only care that you're clicking they only care that you're watching the ad they only care that you're buying the product that they're selling um and i think that's what's really interesting about this idea of hail caesar is uh you know the, it goes back to um you know this this uh, the concept of hail caesar like in the christian context you know uh Christ said, render unto Caesar uh, that which is his, and he holds up a piece of money, which is, you know, symbol of capitalism or economy. You know, we're not talking about money. We're talking about economy. I think it's a very interesting commentary on the way systems of power engage propaganda by exploiting whatever sacred value is currently in their culture. And I think it's a very clever way to kind of subversively explore those very complex themes without giving it an easy answer. This isn't saying, you know, capitalism, good, communism, bad. It's not saying communism, good either. It's, it's saying that this is an ongoing dialectic. It's an ongoing conversation that does feel like there's a kind of accelerating dialectic happening. It does feel like there are people who are deliberately trying to. Um, accelerate technological development, just to see it fall on its face. Um, it's interesting, but it's it's a much more complex conversation than simply this good, this bad. It's it's an ongoing conversation or dialectic about competing ideals. For me, the takeaway from this movie is first, this is a good example of, you know, first of all, the Coen brothers fascination with that time. They obviously loved the movies. They were fascinated by the movies and they also wanted to make fun of the movies. And then everything else, you know, it's, it's like, as soon as you present it as something beautiful and majestic, they undermine it with a blooper or a fail or Scarlett Johansson throwing her crown at the, at the conductor. This is, it's, it's a beautiful, fun way to look at how character ultimately can be telling one story on the narrative level, and you can still tell a very interesting, subversive story on the allegorical level, which is much more layered. It's much more um, it, it's basically it's an incubating egg that's just ready to, to hatch at some point. You want a vivisection. That was my uh, vivisection of Hail Caesar. Uh, I hope that gives you a taste of how we're going to be using uh, story structure and character theory to dive into existing films, existing art, and have an interesting conversation. I'd love to hear your questions and your thoughts. Go ahead and go over to storykinetics.com and submit your questions for the Ask Hole. Be sure and subscribe and join us at Facebook at The Art of Story Group.